And we're back. The series on Panini Halacha seems to have touched a nerve. The, I, I, you know, I can see the statistics on what, uh, you know, how many downloads and how many listens. And you know, we're still talking small time here this uh, at this podcast, but uh, it's significantly higher than in uh, than in other ones than uh, than other series. Um, so I'm glad that. Uh, I'm glad for this response. I'm glad to hear that uh, that this is helping to explain both Rav Malamed himself as a phenomenon and um, trying to get some background into what's going on at present. And that's what I want to talk about a little bit more today. It is Arab Shabbos, February something, 17th, 18th, there it is. February 18th, Arab Shabbos, Parshat Kisisa. Probably not going to drop this until Sunday, but today is Arab Shabbos. And continuing on with the theme of Rav Mulamid. So we talked a little bit about his program in Panini Halacha, what he's trying to do, how he sees it, uh, and the idea of creating a halachic code. Now, what I want to talk about a little bit now is the different ways to write halacha, like how, what we think about when we think about halachic writing. Now, I'm going to distinguish between three main genres of halachic writing and try to describe each one in brief, but, you know, we'll get to, you'll see what I mean. One, which we're not really going to get into today, is what we call, you know, is the commentary, the nosei kelim. The halachic commentary, which is, you know, the, the shach, the taz, the magid mishnah, the sma, the chelkas machokek, the ktsos, right? some of the greatest works that we have are, are of this genre. Usually they're initially printed separately, meaning when the shach first came out, it came out as, I believe, Certainly, is true of some of the other some of the other books. Um, it came out as a separate book. It didn't come out as a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch. It didn't first appear on the page, right? And that's how it often is. And then it's only later that it gets added to the page in the standard volumes, because you know you don't know what's going to be added to the page initially. Um, but at the same time, it's clearly following on the on the heels, and it's a running commentary on that. On that initial, on that original work. Um, now, no say kalim. There are different kinds of no say kalim, right? You think about like Hagos Maimonios is on the Rambam and is just injecting uh, Ashkenazic psak to what the Rambam Paskins first fired him. Uh, sometimes it's explanatory, right? The Magad Mishnah, the Kesef Mishnah, they're trying to understand what the Rambam means, what the Rambam sources are, right? and so you have that. You know, and that that would be the the sma in the on the Shulchan Aruch, um, which is really the first of the Nosei Kalim um, on the on the Shulchan Aruch. You know, the Beis Yosef on the tour. Sometimes, like you, sometimes you have, you know, the Beis Yosef on the tour is much more expansive than the tour, and he's not just trying to tell you what the tour what the tour means, but he's trying to sort of ju- use the tour as a jumping off point to um, you know, to present an entire sugya. And of course, the Beis Yosef has a reputation, the deserved reputation, that is itself, I mean, the Shulchan Aruch is essentially a, 
you know, it's an abstract or a review guide for the Beis Yosef. The Beis Yosef, Rav Yosef Karo, thought of the Beis Yosef as his major work. People who learn uh, see the Beis Yosef as Rav Yosef Karo's major work, not the Shulchan Aruch. Um, although the Shulchan Aruch is the one that, that gained popularity because it's so easy to use. Right? There's a story that's brought by Rabbi Yehuda Modena, or Leon de Modena, de Modena in the 1600s, where he reports of a conversation, maybe earlier, maybe the 1500s, late 1500s, early 1600s, he reports of a conversation that he had with a Balabas, and the Balabas says to him, hey, look, he's holding a Sefer, he's holding a Shulchan Aruch. He's like, hey, we don't need you rabbis anymore because we got a Shulchan Aruch. Now, think about that in the context of... Um, Okay, before we bring that back to, I'm going to circle back to that when we get back to Pinin Halacha. Um, but one of the things, right, so you start off, the Shulchan Aruch is extremely easy to use. One of the things that, you know, and, and easy to use Svarim are threats to rabbis, as we see, you know, from that story, uh, from that story there, from that story about, from, from Yehuda Modena. Uh, and the truth of the matter is, when the Shulchan Aruch first came out, there was a lot of opposition to it. The Maharshal opposed it. Uh, the the brother of the Maharal opposed it. They were, you know, one of the reasons for the opposition was that you can't, you know, there is no one size fits all. There is no, it shouldn't be made easy, right? You're eliminating the rabbi, and you know, you can't when you codify halacha. You're not. There's not enough detail. So one of the roles of the shulch, of of the nose kalim and the shma, and the sma, and I'm indebted on this point to. Uh, Harav, Dr. Noam Samet, the Sma almost explicitly says in his introduction, you know, he says something like, you need my commentary because otherwise you can't really understand the Shulchan Aruch. Right? So, the Shulchan Aruch, when it came out, was perceived as being this really easy, simple text that even like your average Joe Balabas could use. And then the Sma comes a couple of generations later and he realizes you know, the Shulchan Aruch's not going away. This thing has been accepted. This thing is not, you know, you're, you're not going to bury this one. Um, so what we have to do is we, we have to, we're not going to bury it in the ground, but we're going to bury it under commentary, right? That, yes, it's true. The Shulchan Aruch is the Shulchan Aruch, and the Shulchan Aruch is the compendium. Right? And this is, this is part and parcel of the reception history of the Shulchan Aruch. Right, that instead of it was like almost like a jujitsu move. Instead of taking the Shulchan Aruch and saying, "Oh yeah, well, you know, you shouldn't really go like the Shulchan Aruch because it's too simple and it's too easy and anybody can paskin." Right, it the the appearance of the Shulchan Aruch changed the nature of expertise. What it changed the definition of what you had to do in order to be an expert in halacha. If before that, an expert in halacha means you had to know a bunch of different books or you had to know your way around books like uh, Share Dura, really like difficult, you know, usually in ma- often in manuscript, um, disorganized works, um, all of a sudden, you know, you have to come off, you, you, like, it's, there's something that's just much, much easier to master. Um, I'm going to cite here two PhDs that deal with, one deals with the Shulchan Aruch and one deals with the uh, um, reorganization of knowledge in general in the, in the, 16, in the 16th century, in the 1500s. Um, one is the dissertation by Tirza Kelman on the Beis safe, and one is the dissertation by Tamara Morsel Eisenberg on the reorganization of 
rabbinic knowledge in or Jewish knowledge in Ashkenaz in the 1600s, and they they both deal with themes like the ones that I'm that I'm discussing here. Um, and a lot of these insights are, you know, how it is. Like you read ideas, you assimilate ideas, and it's hard afterwards to you know tease apart where you first read an idea, where you first heard an idea. So I'm just going to give a blanket. You know, the ideas that I have about this have been influenced by you know. Some of the people that I just mentioned, Noam Samet, Tirza Kelman, Tamara Morsell Eisberg, um, and others who we may get to. If I get to them, you know, I'll mention them. Um, so, one of the goals of the Nozakel, of the SMA, is that he needs to redefine what it means to be an expert, right? Because if everybody has the Shulchan Aruch, then, as that Balabas said to uh, Yehuda Modena, what do we need your rabbis for? So the rabbis are like, okay, well, you, you can't go against the Shulchan Aruch either. The Shulchan Aruch has already been accepted. Um, but what you can do is you can, you can make it so that the Shulchan Aruch is a really complicated book. Meaning you can say that, oh, the Shulchan Aruch looks simple, but it's really not simple at all. There's so much going on in the Shulchan Aruch. And the truth of the matter is, like, you can do that with any text, especially a text like the Shulchan Aruch. Yes, the Shulchan Aruch is coming, you know, he's boiling down stuff from, you know, hundreds of different sources from all over the place. And he's not just summarizing. And basically, he, he looks like he's summarizing, but he's also giving you a roadmap to the sugya, right? Remember this, and this is something that, among contemporary postgim, uh, I think that the one who does this best is Rav Yosef Rimon, Rav Yatz Rimon. Okay, when the, Shul, the Shulchan Aruch, there's been a, a debate for a long time. Did the Beis Yosef, did Rav Yosef Karo see the Beis Yosef as a Sefer Psak, right, as a book of Halacha that's giving you Psak, or did he see it as a Sefer, um, you know, like a, almost an encyclopedia, a Halachic encyclopedia, where he gives you all the different views and really uh, presents the sugyas from beginning to end. So there's no question that it looks like, like like an encyclopedia. And you got to remember that this was, you know, you're talking about the period of the Renaissance. This is the time that the first great encyclopedia projects are coming online in the world, right? And we don't think of Rav Yosef Caro, who was, you know, born in Spain and then lived in the Ottoman Empire and what's today Bulgaria and, uh, and the European part of Turkey. Um, Thrace is what it's called. Uh you know, and then in Eretz Israel, you don't think about him in context of the Renaissance, but, I mean, it's important to think of him in context of the Renaissance, because that's the world that he's inhabiting, that's the world that he's living in, and, uh, you know, Maoz Kahana has some, has an article where he discusses some of the Renaissance-like themes in, in, uh, you know, with Josef Caro, and he, you know, and he points out that there were Cambridge Platonists you know, there were Protestant theologians in the 1500s in England who were keeping dream diaries, right? And who felt that they were being communicated with by angels in their dreams. Well, you know, Shulchan Aruch, Yosef Cairo is doing the same thing in his Magad Mesharim, right? So these ideas, like, when you see that this is what's going on, you know, all across the, you know, the Europe and the Mediterranean basin, it just gives you a different sort of understanding of, you know, of how 
Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah and all of these players, all of these major figures are, in addition to everything else, they're people of their time. Okay, so there's an encyclopedic endeavor of the, of the or what looks like an encyclopedic endeavor in the Beis Yosef, but the Beis Yosef really isn't an encyclopedia. It doesn't give you every source. When you learn the Beis Yosef, and here's the important point, when you learn the Beis Yosef, you feel like you've mastered the Sogya, and you feel like you've gotten to the bottom line, and you feel like you know what the bottom line is and should be. Now, here's the thing. Psak, right, is not an oracle, right? It's not arbitrary. You don't pick something out of a hat. The way that you paskin is, you know, you learn the sugya, you learn the, you learn the different rishonim, and then, you know, you come to a point where if you have to choose between the, the different ways of understanding the sugya. And the way you present it, and the way you present the different views is, you know, it, it, you can, you can show your hand without showing your hand. Meaning, you don't have to say, I agree with this side. Just you lay it out in a certain way, and it's clear where you're going with it. Right? So Psak is downstream from learning the Sugya. Right? This is what it means, La'asuke shmaitza aliba dehilchasa. Right? That you learn a Sugya, right? and you bring the Sugya to a point where you can state what the Sugya's conclusion is. And so that's what the Beis Yosef does. But the Beis Yosef, he's, he's not giving you everything because he will definitely, and he definitely does present the sugya in a way that makes it, you know, that he, tell, he, he communicates to you what he thinks the psaq should be. Um, and that's something similar to what Rav Rimon does. Rav Rimon, you know, like when he, you have, if you see his Sifrei Halacha, he's got all of his flowcharts and spreadsheets and, and whatnot, like sort of categorizing the different, uh, paths through the sugya, but if you look at it carefully, you know, like he, he's definitely he's weighting certain things higher than others. He's not giving you the full picture of another thing. Since it's in Yana de Yoma, like one of my favorite examples is with uh, when he discusses uh, drinking on Purim. The overwhelming majority of all of the poskim say, you know, they paskin You got to get Bond. You got to get totally drunk. That's the mitzvah. That's the halacha. Um, but yeah, you know, we know that the famous, the the famous shita of Rabbeinu Ephraim, a student of the Rif. This is not the Rabbeinu. There, there are a bunch of Rabbeinu Ephraims. This is one that lived in North Africa. He was a student of the Rif, um, and he said he paskin based on the Gemara, um, or based on a particular reading of the Gemara, that. Um, that we, we don't pass an Adelo Yada. We say that, you know, because the next story where come Rava Veshachte de Rabbi Zera means that we don't pass in like the first one, and therefore there is no Chiv to get drunk on Purim. Okay, you know, everybody knows Rabbeinu, the famous Rabbeinu Ephraim, the party pooper. Uh, but, but here's the thing when Rav Ramon presents the Sugya, and it's like one of his smaller spreadsheets, it's not, you know, a, a big sprawling Sugya. Um, he almost gives like equal weight to the two sides, right? He'll quote like two or three things that say, yeah, you have to get drunk. And then he'll quote like four sources that say, no, no, you shouldn't get drunk, right? Or other like middle positions that, oh, you should only get mildly drunk or you should only, uh, 
you should only, um, you know, if you're going to cause a Chol Hashem, you shouldn't get drunk and all those other things. Now, I'm not saying that he's wrong. I'm just saying that he's presenting a very particular and a, a particular weighing. He weights the sources differently. But you're not going to know that unless you know all the background. And the whole point of the book is so that you would is so that you think you're getting the background, but you're not getting the whole background. Meaning, if you say, like, oh, yeah, I went through that sugya. Well, I went through the sugya the way that, you know, the Beis Yosef or Rav Yosef Rimon held my hand and walked me through the sugya, which means that I'm getting their particular view on the sugya. But that's exactly where the godless is. The godless is that you feel like you're, you feel like, you don't need anybody to paskin for you because you're paskining in it yourself. Meaning, I went through this again. I come out to the, I, I come out with the conclusion that they want me to come out to, that I want me to come out with. So, so that's what's going on. That's one of the things that's going on with Beis Yosef. Beis Yosef is written as though it's one of the Nosei Kalim. And the Beis Yosef even says that he doesn't, he never even saw, or he says, that he didn't see the Shulchan Aruch as a, an independent work. He just saw it as a way to quickly review the conclusions of Beis Yosef. So what you see here is a very skillful, um, a very, he very skillfully cultivates a way of saying that, like, I'm not poskening for all of Klal Yisrael. I'm... I'm just giving you the sugyas, and then I'm just giving you a way to boil down the sugyas so that you can go through it quickly. I'm not paskining. I'm not, you know, because there's always, whenever you paskin, there's always going to be multiple traditions, multiple ways of learning, multiple things. You know, you're, you're, you're excising certain options from the, to- from, from the misora every time you, every time you paskin, right? So he's saying, I'm not doing that, but it was accepted as that. So the question of whether or not he intended it that way sort of became moot within a couple generations of, you know, uh, a couple generations after he published his book. So then the question becomes, okay, what are we going to do with this? How are we going to insert our own, how are we going to, how, how are we going to complicate it? How are we going to recomplicate it? How are we going to make sure that the, the Shulchan Aruch doesn't reduce all of halacha into one, right? And, you know, it's a funny thing, and these two things almost always go in hand, right? Greater accessibility often does not lead to uh, greater creativity. In fact, it's almost always the, uh, uh, like, it's the opposite is often the case, right? And you think about the Shulchan Aruch, the Shulchan Aruch, it gave an unprecedented uh, accessibility of the bottom line halacha to everyone, to anybody that could read a, a fairly basic Hebrew. But at the same time, it also created uniformity, meaning everybody's using the same book. There was no, there was no local difference. There was no, there was not, not there was not much room to to expand or to get creative or to come up with a different way of of looking at things, right? And and that's often the case, right? That when something becomes accessible, it means that, you know, everybody has access to it. But, you know, it, it's it's almost like the uh, the Apple phenomenon. Right, you you have you know functionality is functionality and the ability to be creative. Like uh, Android stuff is much buggier, but it's also like there's a lot more freedom for people to to play around with stuff. Um, in Apple, there are no loose ends. There's no way. Right, it's it's a great user experience, but 
you can't really get creative with it. So the Shulchan Aruch is something like that, right? It's a great user experience, but if you want to get creative, um, there it, it, it sort of narrows the door of creativity. Of course, in comes the Sma, say from Ira Seinayim, and he busts through that door and he's like, no, 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 you guys are missing everything in the Shulchan Aruch. It's not, it's not a simple safer at all. You say you don't need rabbis, that nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, just look here, just take this one simon, right, and I'll show you that, like, he's, he's, he's bringing in from this Gemara, and he's bringing in from this Gemara, and he's showing you that, like, you know, there's a machlokas between here and here, and this is how he's trying to resolve the machlokas, and he's like, he's recomplicating it, right, and that is one of the key goals of the Nosei Kalim, right, so the Nosei Kalim, you have Hasagos, like the Rivid, who challenge, you have supplements, like the Ramah, and like the Hagos, my Manios, and then you have the complicators, right, which I think that those are the, the real bread and butter nose kalim are the ones that take a book that could be a simple book and make it into a, a complicated book. Okay. Adkan, nose kalim. The last two, okay, that was 20 minutes. I thought I was only going to talk about nose kalim for a couple of minutes, but um, it ended up being a little bit longer. So be it. Um, the next two genres that I want to discuss, and these are really, this is really where, I mean, we could talk about these for a long time. And that is the codes themselves, right? The monographs and responsa. Um, there are a lot of differences between monographs, between codes, chiburim, and responsa. And I'll start off by telling a story. And this is, here we're going to start to get a little bit into the controversy with Rav Malamid. This past summer, as many people know, around Tishba of time, uh, it happened that there was like I think on Tishbav itself, there was a group of Jews that wished to uh, daven on Tishbav at the Kotel in the Robinson's Arch area. Now, the Robinson's Arch area was designated for for egalitarian service. For egalitarian worship about uh, 10 12 years ago okay the, the the debate now is not about whether or not it should be designated as such but how it should be arranged how much money should be put in how it should be marketed how it should you know should it be built up to the same level as other parts of the hotel things like that that's that's the debate now but already for 10 years it has been that area of the southern part of the of the hotel which is, I guess, the southwest corner of Harabayit, underneath the southwest corner of Harabayit, has been designated for egalitarian prayer services and has been used by reform and conservative, the reform and conservative movements um, to that end. It's also used by, you know, modern Orthodox people who, or, or anybody that wants to, you know, that wants to... Uh, you know, people have made bar mitzvahs there, bat mitzvahs there, where they can, you know, they could do it in a way that they want to do it and don't have to worry about, uh, you know, the, the, the kotel itself, or like the main part of the kotel is, um, you know, it's, it's not as user-friendly in terms of where the women can stand, where they can see, so that they can see what's going on, you know, with the bar mitzvah boy. If you want a more family-friendly experience, um, then the southern wall is, you know, offers that. So a lot of people who 
wouldn't necessarily normally daven in a um, an egalitarian prayer space have taken advantage of that. Fine. So it happens to be also that most of the year, if you go to the hotel, there's always somebody in the you know the 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 standard, the regular up until now, the men's section and the women's section. There's always people there. Sometimes it's more crowded, sometimes it's less crowded, uh, but there are always people there. For the most part, the southern wall, on, on, if you go at a random time, um, it, it's it's pretty empty or completely empty. Um, I, you know, the last few times that I've been, I've, I've looked to see, is it is it becoming a thing? Are people going there? And the answer is not really. You can't like walk in there and like, you know, tachapa mincha. Um, you can't even walk in there tachapa slichos. Uh, it's, um, you know, I sometimes joke that uh, on Tishabav during Nachem, you know, when I think of, you know, Hashomi Mame and Yoshev, I, I have Kavana for that, for that area of Yushalayim. Because it's Mame Shomi Mame and Yoshev. There's really, it's desolate, it's deserted. And that's most of the time. Um, and so, because it's deserted so often, there are people who are, um, who said like, okay, well, you know, like we'll have like a, a kumzitz down there, yeshivas or, you know, yeshivas and seminaries together, or youth groups or summer camp, you know, summer programs and whatever, even if they're orthodox, they're like, okay, we could have a kumzitz there because boys and girls together, it's not an issue. We can have a, you know, we can have a co-ed kumzitz. We're not going to dive in there without a machitza, but we can have a kumzitz. Like we can use the space for, for what we need. So on Tishabav. You know, you had people that like, okay, I'm gonna, we'll, we'll go there because we can have a nicer minion there for, for kinos, where, or for, for echa, where you don't necessarily need a machitza. Um, you know, you're sitting on the floor and you can, whatever. Um, and it's not a tefillah. And they come there, and that night there happens to be that there are reform and, and conservative groups there, and so it became, it became a big to do, and it was ugly, and um, you know. It's kind of the last thing that we need on Tisha B'Av. And so this became an issue. Like, how do we, like, how do we think about it? So most Orthodox rabbis in Israel are like, what do you mean? This is part of the Kotel. The Kotel has a status of a base Knesset. You can't come and say that, like, you know, use it for reform and conservative prayers because that's just not, you know, it goes against halacha. So you can't use it for those kinds of things. So... Um, and Rav Malamid said something very different. Rav Malamid was like, you know, already for a couple of years, Rav Malamid has shown a willingness to dialogue with Reform and Conservative and has written some articles on how he thinks we should be dealing with uh, specifically Reform. And in this case, he's like, you know, he, he says things like, first of all, your average garden variety, run-of-the-mill American Reform Jew doesn't have much of a connection to Israel. So you're talking about the people that have enough of a connection that they want to go and daven at the Kotel. We should be encouraging that. There's not enough of that, right? So why would you discourage that? You would want to make them feel as welcome as possible. And he wrote this open letter to the Rav of the Kotel. Like, you should be bringing them a safer Torah. You should be asking them if there's anything that they need, right? Because this is the way that we need to, this is the way that we need to be treating with them. We shouldn't be treating them as, you know, as parias, we should be welcoming them, and we should try to make them have as um, you know as good an experience and as as positive an experience as possible. That was his that was his response. I'm paraphrasing greatly, but that was fundamentally that's what he said, right? We should welcome them. 
um, and we should encourage them to visit that site. Fun. Now, it also happens to be that about a decade ago, when this site was first designated for use by Reform and Conservative uh, for, for egalitarian prayer, prayer services, um, the Rav of the Kotel, Rav Rabinowitz, asked Rav Asher Weiss, what should we do? What should the status, what's the status of this place? Like, well, should we, you know, should we try to take it over? And there were plenty of Rabbanim, like Rav Amar, the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim, who used to be the Rishon Litzion, the chief rabbi, the Sephardic chief rabbi. He, his approach is take it over, right? Just have, if you have constant minyanim there of, of uh, if you have constant orthodox minyanim there, then there's no, you know, there's, the whole thing becomes a, a, a moot issue and you just keep them from going there and keep them from taking it over and, you know, like just a very aggressive take it over kind of thing. Right? And that's also the, the, that's also the policy or that's also the, uh, the, the attitude of Bezalel Smutrich and, you know, people on the religious right in general, um, you know, they, they think, whatever, we're not going to get too much into what we think because I just, I don't like spending a lot of time thinking about what they think. Okay, so Rav Rabinowitz asked Rav Usher Weiss, what do we do? And Rav Usher, in his tshuva, it was quoted in the Israeli media at the time, but the tshuva hasn't been published. It happens to be that I have a copy of it. Uh, Rav Usher said to Rav Rabinowitz, he, he quotes Rav Moshe Feinstein uh, you know, all about davening in reform and conservative synagogues. And as many people know, Rav Moshe Feinstein was extremely machmir. Rav Moshe Feinstein even said that if you live in a town where the only place where you can hear Tekiah's shofar is a conservative synagogue, better to not go hear the shofar that year than to go into a conservative synagogue. Right? We're talking like real hardcore, um, you know, just completely writing them out. So Rav Usher quotes those tshuvas from Rav Moshe Feinstein. He says that we know from Rav Moshe that it's usher to daven in Reform and Conservative synagogues. And then he says, since the Israeli government has designated this space as a prayer space for egalitarian prayer, which we consider, right, which, is, which is prayer, a form of prayer that goes against halacha, it's usher to daven there. It's forbidden to daven there. You're not allowed to daven there. So this is you know, I have like these little names for this kind of thing, where Rav Usher is using the rhetoric of Chumrah, right? He, the, the, the rhetoric here is, these people are completely written out, these people are, you know, you can't have anything to do with them, you can't daven in their spaces, whatever, which is a very harsh Mahmir rhetoric, but he's essentially saying, and therefore leave them the heck alone. Don't bother them. Don't take over their prayer space. In fact, you can't take over their prayer space because it's us to take over their prayer space because you can't, you're not allowed to daven there. Even if they happen to not be there at the time, you're not allowed to daven there. And he says so explicitly. So there you have, okay, this is what I sort of call, what I call a fake right go left, right? It looks like he's going to be, it looks like he's writing in a way that makes it look like he's Mahmir, but he's not being Mahmir at all, right? In fact, it's a, it's, I don't know if I would call it a make-kill either, he's trying to keep the peace. Right? He's trying to say, he's saying, leave them alone without coming out and saying, leave them alone. 
He's saying, leave them alone by saying, oh, you know, it's us or for you to dive in there. Which is, it's its own sort of genius. I mean, it's really, it's, this is part of a rusher's godless, is that he's able to, he's able to formulate opinions. He's able to, to use that sort of very traditional rhetoric. And it's, and it's true. I mean, it's not that he's making it, it's not that he's, it's not that he's faking it. He's very much embedded in a very traditional mode of rhetoric, but he's using it, he, he's enveloping his common sense attitude within it. But if he, you know, but he knows that if he would say, oh, why do you need to take it over? Why do you need to, you know, bother them? It's, there's so few of them anyway, just leave them alone. Right? If he, he knows that if he would say something like that, I don't know if people would listen to him. You know, people might say, no, no, this is a battle that we have to fight because, you know, if uh, if we start letting them dive in, then pretty soon, you know, whatever, slippery slopes, it'll lead to misdancing. It'll, it'll, I don't know, they'll start being, uh, they'll be MacGyver, they'll be MacGyver, everybody, or whatever, crazy things that people say. Um, you know, which is obviously all a bunch of baloney, but like, you know, that's what, like, that's what the reaction would be had he said, leave them alone. So he doesn't say leave them alone. He says... Hmm. It's us or to dive in there, right? It's almost like a church. You can't go into a church, so you can't go there either. You can't dive in there either. So after Rav Malamed wrote what he wrote this past summer, I sent him Rav Usher's tshuva, the whole, the full tshuva, and then I happened to be visiting. Like I went with my family on a short vacation for a couple of days in the the hills of the Shomron. We we checked out the Samaritan sites there, which is is fantastic. Uh, very much recommended. And we were staying, there's like a, there's a little resort area in Harbracha, where Muhammad lives, and I took the opportunity to, to, have, uh, to have a meeting with him. And this is one of the things that I brought up. And, you know, I sent him, I had sent him the tshuva beforehand, and he says, it's brilliant what he's trying to do. I mean, it's ingenious what he's trying to do, but he says that that's not my way. That's not how I do things. Rav Muhammad said, I don't, I don't try to like... I don't try to use these sort of like sophisticated, um, you know, ways to like backhandedly say what I really mean to say. Like, if I have something to say, I'm going to say it straight up. He said, I'm going to take the ekroni approach. I'm going to, I'm going to speak, I'm going to speak my principle, right? I'm going to speak on principle and I'm going to say what I think is the correct thing on principle without trying to, without trying to tiptoe around it. So let's think about that, and let's think about what that says about response on one hand, and what that says about chiburim and you know monographs, and specifically about Rav Malamed on the other hand. So the great thing, the ingenious thing about Rav Usher's psak is that Rav Usher makes no Rav Usher's psak. It's almost like it's a davar shavel of nefesh. Anybody who anybody can accept it. You don't have to agree with him ideologically in order to accept it. If you think that Reform Jews should have a space to daven at the Kotel, then great, you can accept that psak because he says that then you you know leave them alone. And if you think that they shouldn't, then Ravasher is still saying, well, then you still have to leave them alone because it's us for you to daven there. Whereas Rav Malamid, he 
starts from the a more ideological, well, we call it principles, but it's it's an ideological position that you know we should be welcoming them, we should be nice to them. And he proceeds from there to his halachic conclusion of you should be able to give them, <clears throat> you should give them Sifrei Torah, you should give them Sidurim, you should welcome them. You know, which, I mean, it's, it's you know, to the extent that, that for all intents and purposes, that is a halachic approach, that is his psak halacha. But the only way that you would accept his psak halacha, the only people that would accept his psak halacha are people who agree with his ideological commitments. And as we see, not everybody, especially on that issue, agrees with his ideological commitments. And therefore, as a result of that, they're not going to agree with his psak halacha. So that's one difference between a responsum and a uh, and a chibur, right? A, a monograph, a code. When somebody sits down to write a code, they're progressing from the big principles to the little principles. They're thinking about how everything fits together, how everything is organized. You know, with in extreme cases like with, with Muhammad and Rav and, and Rambam. You're thinking about how this, you know, how the details fit together into this, uh, you know, civilizational superstructure, right? And that's very much driven by ideology, meaning you have to have a vision of what this ideal society looks like in order for, in order to be able to break it down to details. When you're talking about responsa, what responsa demands is you, not that you're starting from the halacha and proceeding to the, you're starting from the big vision and proceeding to the case, but you're starting with the question. And more than that, you're starting with the questioner. And you're trying to say, you're trying to, you're trying to see, okay, what is motivating the questioner? And now how do I under, how do I respond to the questioner in a way that on one hand will lead him to my, to the answer that I think is the correct answer. But on the other hand, it will still, it will still be something that he would feel comfortable listening to, because if you think about it, responsa, it's a, you know we think of them as a form of legal literature, but responsa never imply the capacity to enforce. Almost by definition, you're writing to another community, the question comes from another community. You're writing to that other community. You have no way, you have no way of, you have no way of guaranteeing that the other person is going to, is going to listen to you in the first place, right? He could have asked three other people, right? So you're not, in a sense, obviously there's, there's psak halacha that's going on in a tshuva, but there's also more than that, there is an attempt to persuade. Now, there are different ways to persuade. You would persuade through rhetoric, you persuade through argumentation, but the, but the bottom line is that our, the, the purpose of a responsum is to persuade. And you want to use the arguments when you're trying to persuade. You want to use arguments that you think will work. Okay? So if you're trying to persuade someone not to daven at, you know, not to take over the reform uh, prayer space at the Kotel, you know, well, what kind of argument is going to work? Well, for some people, it might be the article of, well, oh, leave them alone, don't take them over, be nice to reform Jews. But on the another type of argument might be, oh no, those guys, they're so terrible, you're not even allowed to set foot in the prayer in the area that's designated for them. 
right? Which is you're getting to the same goal, but you're using a very different kind of rhetoric. Now, obviously, these things are are constrained by you know what the what the respondent actually believes, right? You know, I'm not saying that respondents that may shivim make up what their argumentation is going to be, but it certainly does. Um, you know, you you always do want the questioner to feel validated, right? And I'll give one example, and I think that's where we'll end for today, and we'll continue with this uh, in the next episode. Rav Moshe Feinstein has a tshuva to a group of balabatim in a particular shul. This shul, if you can imagine, like one of the old school American modern Orthodox shuls that were, you know, from the 60s and 70s, one of those shuls that had flags on the bima, one on the right, one on the left. You had an American flag and you had an Israeli flag. And this group of Balabatim, you know, they weren't from the big Zionists, and they said to Rav, they said to, um, they said to Rav Moshe, we want to break away. You know, we think it's terrible that they have these flags here in the base Madrash, here in the base Knesses. We want to break away. We want to form our own minion where you're not going to have narish chitin silliness like flags, you know, up there next to the Aron Kodesh. And Rav Moshe Feinstein in his tshuva, it's almost like he goes full Satmar in this tshuva. He starts saying like, yeah, it's terrible, you know, that they put the American flag there. What business does an American flag have in a having a shul, and worse, they put the Israeli flag, it's a mamlachas, it was, it's a, it's a state that was created by Rishayim, by people who hated the traditions of Israel, he goes full on with like this whole, the anti-Zionist, and again, a Jewish anti-Zionist, meaning we don't like the people who set up the state of Israel, not, we don't think Jews should live there, um, but he goes full on criticizing the, you know, the, the, the Zionists who founded the state of Israel. And then, after writing this whole, you know, several paragraphs of this, he goes back and he says, but it's really not worth breaking out, breaking away over. Like, come on, just grin and bear it. It's not such a big deal that you have to say, you have to sit in this shul. It's not worth creating machlokis over this. And that's how he leaves it. He validates them. And then he says, but don't, still, don't break away. Um, this, this tshuva, I believe, is discussed by Professor Mark Wachowski of the Hebrew Union College um, in an article on the, what he, what's called the rhetoric of responsa. It's a brilliant article, and it's a great example of how this sort of thing works. Um, so Rav Moshe, in that, in that article, it's also an example of what I call fake right go left. Because he's validating, he's validating the, the sentiments of the people asking the question. And it's super important to do that. And then he leads them to the conclusion that he wants to lead them to, but he first buys, he first earns their trust. And I think that that's part of what made Rav Moshe Rav Moshe, and I think that's part of what makes Rav Usher Rav Usher, is that they have this credibility. They have this trustworthiness about them that when you ask a question, you have the sense that your answer is, that whatever the answer is, you're being, you're being validated. Your question is being validated. Where you're coming from is being understood. Okay? And now that's something that you can do in responsa because a responsum is 
an answer to a question under a very particular set of circumstances, a particular time, a particular place, to a particular person. And so you have that, you can do, you can do that sort of individuation in responsa. Now, when it comes to a code, almost by definition, you can't do that. You're trying to create a code of law that is something that everybody can use, something that's a handbook, something that's a guide that anybody can take off the shelf and use, right? And it's not going to be geared to, it might be geared to a particular population, but it's not going to be, it's not going to get down to the particular sentimental, emotional, ideological uh, commitments and tendencies of of the particular user, at least not in the same way as a responsum would. And so, Rav Usher's answer and, to, and Rav Muhammad's answer to the same question, even though there are a lot of similarities between the same answers, and remember, these are the two, two of the postkim who are saying, don't, you know, don't make their lives miserable, right? But they're taking two different approaches and they're answering the question in two very, very different ways. One, I think, is characteristic of codes, and the other, I think, is characteristic of response. And I suggested this to Rav Malamed. You know, he said that maybe this is the difference, that, you know, you're the one who's quoting, you know, you're the, you take an Ekronia approach, you take a principled approach, because that's what's guiding the way that you are writing what you write. And Rav Usher is taking a more individuated approach, because that's the sort of that's the sort of safer that he's writing. He's mainly writing chuvos. Um, I think that there are other differences, other key differences between shelos and chuvos on one hand and codes on the other hand, but that is going to have to wait until next time. Um, for now, I think this little anecdote about Rav Usher and Rav Malamid starts to give a little bit of a sense of why people are upset at Rav Malamid. Um, why Rav Malamid, in, in the way that he writes halacha, by, by sticking to principle and by, and by insisting that if he's going to provide a rationale, right, he's going to start with, you know, he's going to give you his ideological claims. He's going to give you where he stands uh, on principle and proceed from there to the halacha. Um, I think that he's showing the way where, you know, he, he's essentially acknowledging that people who don't agree with me ideologically, people who don't share uh, the principled commitments that I share, are not going to agree with the halachic rulings that proceed from that. And so this issue of, you know, how how to deal with, how to how to how to treat reform and, uh, you know, non-orthodox Jews specifically people who are members of non-Orthodox religious movements, right, like Reform and Conservative, um, that's going to be a, that's going to be a, a key uh, fault line between those who accept or, you know, those who promote Rav Muhammad and those who, and those who are now starting to speak out against Rav Muhammad. And it's specific, it's specifically the disagreement of those because, you know, if it's, if it's a theoretical argument, if it's an argument about principle that remains an argument about principle, that's one thing. But here it's an argument about principle that gets translated into halacha, 
right? Meaning like a you know version of Bamberger had a debate you know, 150 years ago, and yeah, it was a pretty bitter debate. But you're not talking about people who neither of Rav Hirsch nor Rav Bamberger then wrote a halachic code that was taking this, you know, these ideological commitments, their, you know, their respective ideological commitments as, as a halachic given. That's exactly what Rav Malamed is doing, right? The halacha proceeds from his ideological commitments. And when you do that, and, other, and somebody else disagrees with your ideological commitments, then you're, you're opening the door for an, for an argument and I mean, which is fine, you know, he, he would say like, yeah, if you disagree with my ideal, with, with my priors, you're going to disagree with my conclusions, right? But it also opens the door for a different kind of critique, which is the, here, you're poskening halacha without necessarily giving us what you're, you know, in other cases, you will poskin halacha without giving us your ideological priors. So how do I know that I can trust you? Maybe your motives there are something that I don't necessarily agree with. So we will continue in this vein in the next episode. Until then, well, a good tevach. I'm writing, I'm speaking on Arab Shabbos, so a good Shabbos to me. By the time you hear this, a good tevach. And the next time, in the next few days, I hope to get to part four of the Penine, in this Penine Halacha series on Down the Rabbi Hole.